Hi, and welcome to The Fit, the fashion, innovation, and technology podcast hosted by eFitter, personalizing the shopping experience for you. My name's Judith. And I'm Elizabeth. And on The Fit, we delve into the complex world of fashion and tech with insights from industry players, old and new, and much, much more. Join us every other Monday for a new episode you do not want to miss. To join the tribe, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at eFitter app, and join the conversation using the hashtag TheFitPod. Today we're here with Bianca Rangecroft, founder of Wearing, the cure for the I have nothing to wear syndrome and a mobile destination for all things wardrobe. The Wearing platform aims to empower conscious consumers to utilize their spending power for good and make the most of what they already own through digitalizing their wardrobe. Thank you for joining us, Bianca. Thanks for having me, guys. So we just want to jump straight in. Um, give us an introduction into wearing your background, how it came to be, and I guess the motive behind building the app and the community. So I think my background um, is in banking. I spent the first four years of my career um, at Barclays and then at Goldman. Um, and during that time, I was you know, privileged enough to work on two big um, fashion tech IPOs, so Stitch Fix and Farfetch. Um, and that's kind of how I got into the whole personal styling landscape. Um, and it really led me to sit, to think, okay, how can we democratize this whole process? Like, how can we make it something that's available to the everyday woman um, who struggles with, you know, a lot of the issues that are so familiar to us, like, I've got nothing to wear. I'm constantly buying things and, and not really getting it right. Um, you know, I'm not able to sort of put outfits together I struggle with style inspiration on a daily basis um, and so looking at that on the one side and then looking at the impact stuff on the other side um, I thought well how can we bridge that gap between making styling accessible but also making consumers more mindful um, and really sort of empowering them to lower their carbon and water footprint um, and so then I joined something called Unleash which is a global hackathon for the SDGs um, in November 2019 um, in China and that's really where the idea of wearing was born and I collaborated with some amazing impact professionals on that and that's kind of how we we got the idea of the app to bridge those two um, sort of worlds and, and make a product that was um, sort of a one-stop shop for all your fashion needs. Can you explain a little bit of exactly what wearing is and how it works for people who may not be aware? Yeah, sure, of course. Um, so <laughs> as Judith very um, succinctly put it, um, it, it's a digital wardrobe and a personal styling app. Um, and so what happens is you take pictures of everything that you own, either live or, um, you know, with e-commerce screenshots, we have a lot of Gen Z's doing that and it works really well. <laughs> and then basically you can create unlimited amounts of outfits. You can see everything that you own and you can style things together, but also get styling tips from us when you're stuck. So wearing generated outfit ideas. Um, and we're working on a big new launch for the 2nd of Feb. And that will also include sustainable product recommendations to fill your wardrobe gaps, to really help you choose the right things um, that go with a large amount of pieces already in your wardrobe. So what it sounds like is, um, I think I saw a tweet earlier in the week saying, how come we don't have a real life version of the Clueless app that Cher uses to match all her clothes? And it's basically that in real life. <laughs> 100% like literally we built a complete replica <laughs> of that machine that, that we have that she has sorry um because we were like that is actually the best way to be able to visualize things in a digital manner right it's almost like being able to shuffle between tops 
um, changing jeans, changing um, shoes. And that was just the best way, the best possible UX that that our wearers sort of, um, you know, asked us to build essentially, because it all started, you know, very simply. So we really, we've come really, really far. <laughs> amazing, amazing. I really love the concept. I mean, I've tried it out. I know Bleggy's down had it for a while as well. Um, and I just want to say, I want to touch on something you said earlier, actually, about your journey into finding wearing. And you mentioned, you know, you were behind the scenes working on the IPO of brands like Stitch Fix. And we have a question regarding, you know, there's personal styling apps like Dress, like Stitch Fix, that kind of digitalize the whole experience of finding your style or finding outfits online. But what motivated you to take the angle that is a bit more sustainable? So a bit more like, you know, you don't need to buy these clothes that we recommend you, you could already own them. I, th I think that's arguably the best question. And it's something that I have been thinking about for a long, long time. Um, and I think for me, it was just the fact that I was primarily a frustrated customer. You know, I was really that woman who would go out on her lunch break, you know, maybe buy something from a fast fashion place, come back, you know, get that little hit of dopamine, and then it's all gone. And, and you kind of look at this process and, and, and it felt so broken to me. It felt nonsensical. And so I thought, well, how can we optimize this end to end? There has to be some kind of product that's not just a digital wardrobe organizer, that's not just a stitch fix. There must be something that regroups all your activities in the value chain and that helps you extend the life cycle of your clothes. So for me, you know, the, the digital wardrobe part was just that first building block because you need to be able to see what you own, right? That's almost a prerequisite. Um, and then, as I mentioned, we um, when I was at GS and also at Barclays, I was um, one of the youngest analysts on an environmental committee. And so we were getting, you know, people like trade to come into the office, um, you know, to, to put up donation banks for clothes that would go to landfill. And then that kind of, you know, really hit home that point about what do we do with the stuff we own? So we've got this new digital wardrobe that we're trying to build. We can see everything that we own, but how do we make sure that people use that stuff? As you said, really like, you know, mine is better than you. And how can I unlock all the potential possibilities around those items? Um, and that's really where we started looking into the impact space and how could, you know, utilization improvements um, or, or, you know, sustainable shopping behaviors contribute to your overall carbon and water footprint and how we could sort of help our wearers, empower them with knowledge, um, but also incentivize them, you know, with a badge system or something like that to really like, behave and rewear, you know, repurpose, et cetera. So it was, it was all these things that were kind of in my mind um, that led us to think about the wearing platform, about the impact metrics that we're trying to build in Q2, um, and also the integration with, you know, caring partners to make sure that you can dry clean ethically, that you can donate ethically, et cetera. So was, for me, it was really, the impact stuff is really all about just looking at that whole value chain and offering a service around all of it. One of the main themes um, for our podcast this season has been around the circular economy and the idea that um, whatever you own can either be reused or recycled or given away and it doesn't have to be a continuous cycle of producing more clothing and throwing it away into landfill. And I know that wearing doesn't um, technically fit into that model, but you mentioned that you're looking at partnerships with third parties and I know that you're a Depop user as well. So how do you think that the bigger picture vision of the circular economy feeds into your brand vision for wearing and how you want your customers to interact either with each other or just being aware of the sustainable fashion community? I think that's a fantastic question. Um, and it's one of my biggest frustrations as a user too. <laughs> so I think that the short and simple is, is really the dream would be for us to partner with people like Vestia, Depop, um, so that 
everywhere I could literally export her digital pictures that are already, you know, automatically cropped and tagged, which is what we do in house, to Depop, to Vestiaire, to Vinted, to eBay, resell her stuff there. Um, and then as a, th a second thing, we would have our own mini marketplace on wearing, um, whether that's with geolocalization, um, but just a really easy way to say, well, what do we do with swap stuff? How do we make you, you know, interact with your community? Like maybe there's a girl down in Hoxton who, you know, wants your items. You don't need to really put it through the donation loop because there's also a lot of waste there. There's also a lot of, um, you know, mismanagement there sometimes. So I think for us, the big vision is really like making it super local, making it community-based uh, and making sure that we're tapping into that resale and also to some extent rental, um, you know, kind of revolution. I love the possibilities for this community. Like, I feel like it's literally endless. The fact that, you know, you could, you're already encouraging users to use the items they already own, but it could become this thing where you can resell through the app, you could swap through the app, you can rent through the app. I think the possibilities are endless, which is amazing. In terms of the actual app as it stands now, one thing that obviously we're understanding as we also build is the personalized experience for customers is a primary aim, I think, for anyone creating any sort of experience. During this period of lockdown, especially, how has this white glove experience, how have you handled that? The idea that, you know, I am me and I like my clothes a certain way, I'm this certain style, um, and I prefer a personalized experience versus a, an, another user, as well as, you know, the functionalities of people will have to upload their items. Are there any barriers that you've found in, in this model? And how has lockdown affected, I think, the business model as it stood as well? You are testing my agility. I love it. Thank <laughs> you for pushing me. So I think that the, the first thing um, in terms of barriers to entry or barriers to sort of uploading and making the most of the app um, is twofold. So I think on the one hand, we've been really lucky with COVID um, in that a lot of the girls uh, women um, and even men <laughs> on wearing already have said to us actually this was almost a godsend there's this kind of moment of pause this moment of um you know almost thought provoking um you know life reassessing kind of pause has been super useful for them because they've really decided okay you know what I've got the time I'm going to digitize and I'm going to do it and I'm going to start creating all the outfits that I can't wait to wear when COVID is is sort of gone or finished and um, so that that's sort of something on the one hand um, we had launched something called the white glove service um, initially which was kind of for our premium users where we'd come to your house we'd take pictures of everything that you owed and then we'd revamp your wardrobe um, you know as 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 you wanted it done so that suffered a little bit because obviously we couldn't do more user testing we couldn't really roll it out throughout London and we had had a lot of plans to do that and employ people you know especially women in the community um, and empowered them to sort of to sort of do that um, and that's taken a little bit Bit of a hit from a COVID perspective so those are kind of the two the two sides of of the equation but I think then um you know to your point about the business model I think everything has kind of exploded much more than we thought it will it would sorry um so I think we we've been really lucky that we've seen such a big uptick in downloads um you know very recently we've been featured in a couple of publications so we really do see those very early you know signs of product market fit um so we're, we're I think we're very happy with that absolutely um 
sort of vital for us. And I think the, the whole company has been built around this. And this is really our strongest USP. Um, because without understanding, let's say, your style persona, your preferences, um, a tool like this doesn't make sense, right? And that's why I was saying at the beginning, a lot of the wardrobe organizer apps out there just they just don't work because they're not personal, right? And there, and there isn't that level of granularity. So we've addressed that on a couple of levels. Um, the first one being that we have this onboarding style quiz um, and in the new February launch, a, a color quiz to help you pick um, you know, items to buy that really match your tonality, your eyes, your skin, et cetera. So we've done a lot of due diligence on that front and really understanding where do you fit? And obviously, no human fits in a box, and that's not what we're saying. But we need to get some kind of base case around, you know, your preferences and and and, and what you love. Um, and then we've also done a lot of focus groups. We had something called the Wednesday Wine <laughs> um, event, where we would really get an understanding into the thought process behind how women style themselves, how they behave, when you know they they pick their clothes, when do they shop, when do they do these things? Because that that sort of timeline also has a big impact on how you use the app and what you want from it. Um, so those are some of the things that we've done to sort of personalize the more machine learning part of the app on both the styling side and also on the product recommendation side. Um, and then to your point, Elizabeth, about the more premium um, users, I think that's maybe something that we've, we've failed a little bit um, to do in the last couple of months, because as as COVID sort of impacted um, the fact that we couldn't do the white glove service, that was really something that we were counting on to be able to provide that super, you know, dream, um, you know, customer experience. So we, we we inspired ourselves a lot of the Airbnb um, podcast. I don't know if you guys watched that, but like, what is the most amazing version of your product? And we had done a lot of research into that. So we're really sad that we couldn't we couldn't roll that out. But um, that's definitely going to be on the cards for for March. Let's say when everything comes back to normal hopefully we'll be back to this conversation in a sec but in the meantime here's our take on what's happening in the world of fashion and tech it's finally happened asos have confirmed that they will buy topshop topman and miss selfridge saving the brand names of three iconic british brands although there are 2500 jobs at risk the design and buying teams will remain at arcadia head office what will this mean for brick and mortar stores when lockdown three eventually ends well on the plus side, Joni Jeans live on. <laughs> <laughs> Our kids are not going to understand what that even means. That's the funniest thing. No, do you remember um, like back in the day when Topshop was the thing and high-waisted jeans were kind of a novelty? Like Joni Jeans wear their jeans that were like high-waisted and really, like quite slim. Everyone had Joni Jeans. Everyone. Like <laughs> the jeans. Like if you didn't have Joni Jeans, what jeans were you wearing? Honestly, oh my God, those were the days. Yeah, um, yes, Jenny Jeans live on for, to fight another day. However, yes, it's unfortunate because um, the only thing that is really being retained is the Topshop name under the ASOS umbrella, which means massive, massive, massive job losses. But also, um, I guess from a cultural perspective, Topshop and Miss Selfridge are going to lose that um, the importance that it had on the British high street. So for example, like we grew up with these brands, Gen Z aren't necessarily going to understand the significance of walking into Topshop and Oxford Street and hearing a live DJ and music blaring and all of that. They're not going to have that experience, which is kind of sad, but also makes me think um, about what Oxford Street, for example, is going to look like when we eventually leave this pandemic. 
By now, pay-related schemes such as ClearPay and Klarna will be regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. This means these brands will have to make affordability checks since 10% of Buy Now Pay Later users are in arrears. As we know, these brands are popular with Gen Z, so the hope is they can shop with slightly lower risk. I think this news has been coming for a while. Um, we have talked about Klarna and the likelihood of a younger or about 18, I think 18 is the minimum age you can sign up for Klarna anyway. So there is, you know, some sort of regulation and restriction there but the idea that you can spend as little as how many pounds and borrow it even though you have it and that's there for you to use whenever you want um has been a problem i think for most parents as well to really police what their kids are buying if you have um klarna if you've used it i know some people use it for huge purchases which makes sense you know it's a way to just schedule your payments and make sure you're keeping on top of things. It's also a way to discipline yourself when you buy, which is a, it can be a good thing. But if most users, which I, I know Klarna does target the younger consumer, they're on PLT, they're on ASOS, well, I don't think they're on ASOS, sorry. They're on PLT Misguided. They're on the more Gen Z facing brands side. And I think that was where the issue was because the consumers are one particular age group which means that they are not financially aware. They really do not have the financial education that a 24, 25, 26 year old would have when they shop online. And to know that, okay, I can't actually afford to buy this, I don't know, 80 pound dress. I don't need it versus I can clarner it. There's a huge, huge, huge um, implication that that has for um, companies like Klarna. The FCA, their concern was that people can borrow for one single purchase and a consumer can use more than one buy now pay later provider at the checkout without their mounting debts being flagged by you know any firm or any lender that was the issue it's complex though i don't think buy now pay later as it stands on its own is a bad thing i really don't i think it's the culture that it's used in which is fast fashion that is really causing the problem here and i think the regulation the title regulation is needed just for that sector especially and i think on top of that there was also the issue of you can get these credit limits with these buy now pay later schemes across various different ones. There's not just Klarna, there's clear pay, there's there's yeah. another one of after pay. Yeah, well, I think. Yeah. Lay by there's so many. Yeah. I think a lot of the criticism towards buy now pay later schemes is unwarranted. Um in the article that we read there was a comparison to payday loans and I think that's absolutely ridiculous because the way payday loans were designed were to, to be exploitative with those ridiculous interest rates. Whereas, as you said, if I'm shopping on Klarna and I have an outstanding balance, they won't let me borrow anymore. But that's not an issue with payday loans. They don't care how much you borrow from them because they know that the interest is thousands of percent. So I think it's an unfair comparison. I think the reason I read welcome the regulation is because as you said if someone has an addiction to shopping they may be in a situation where they may make one single purchase and split it between Klarna, Clearpay, Layby, Afterpay. That is a problem and it's something that isn't easy for all of those different companies to speak to each other to kind of get a view for that customer and where they are or turn them down. I think the biggest issue with um, buy now pay later schemes is the lack of information or misinformation for everyday consumers. But I think that's a broader state of 
um, lack of financial education that a lot of people have. And what I mean by that is on these schemes, there'll be people who use Klarna and so on who say, oh, I'm using it because I want to boost my credit rating because if I pay it back, it's going to increase my credit score. But the same way that Klarna doesn't actually affect, negatively affect a user's credit rating if they miss a payment, it also doesn't improve it. So really and truly, the only real like suitable use case for those things is if you know that the money's coming in, but you need something urgently and you just need that bridge period to make that purchase, which may or may not apply to clothes. But remember, these companies are used from various different companies, um, various different brands that aren't just clothing brands. So um, I think that's the biggest issue in that people think that there is a benefit in the long term to using these schemes. So they use them, they may get trapped into the cycle of using them, and then they're in a situation where they're, they're dependent on buy now, pay later schemes. So all in all, I think it's a good thing. Um, I just think it's more commentary on this, the lack of financial education that we have, particularly in this country. Jeff Bezos is stepping down as Amazon's CEO and is being replaced by Andy Jassy, the head of Amazon Web Services. While this is a shock change in the world of big tech, the question we're asking is how will it affect Amazon's fashion goals? Rihanna's Savage Fenty show last October premiered on Amazon Prime with pieces available to buy on the website. We know Amazon sells everything, but will they conquer the fashion world? I think it will be absolutely like a disaster <laughs> fashion if Amazon is somehow able to jump into the fast fashion landscape. Like I would actually lose it. I'm not even going to lie. They are too fast right now, like too fast and it's not close. No, we're good, we're good. But however, one thing that I did find um, really interesting in the article was something they said about how, you know, buying clothes is more of an emotional decision. It's very, you know, personal to you versus buying a spoon or spatula that you need to pick up quickly. So some people are thinking, you know, it will take a bit more than just being, you know, a fast and reliable service that Amazon have built over the years to actually convert a lot of us to Amazon. I have bought clothes on Amazon before. What did you buy? I kept them. So Amazon do this prime wardrobe thing. This was before my sustainable pledge. Please, please, before <laughs> anyone comes for me. This was way before. This was like 2019, back when I was like a blogger and I needed some things to wear that I didn't have. Um, so I bought them um, and Amazon do this prime wardrobe thing where you can try on clothes for 10 days, um, up to seven items, try for 10 days. If you don't want them, just return them. So I did it once. I'll be very honest, I did. Um, I think it was very like beta stage at that point. It wasn't like completely rolled out across all their prime um, consumer base. The reason why I never really, you know, took them up on it or really shopped there since is because it just lacked the branding, I think, that I needed from a particular store. It's different when you're shopping in a marketplace and you actually have to type in the item you're looking for to find it. And the way the Prime Wardrobe worked, it was like very badly, like very bad UX in my my personal opinion. It's not really nice. You have to like click on the, the item if you're a woman and you're mad. It's just, if you think Zara's bad, okay, Zara's still bad, but this is as bad. Um, so for me, it was just more of, I've used Amazon for years for everything other than clothes. For me to switch to clothes now, it's like, I can't I can't do that. Like, it's like, there's a whole, for example, community of people that shop at Zara. There's a whole community of people that shop at Mango. A whole community that shop at pretty little thing. Amazon doesn't have that. 
So it's so funny that you say that you think Amazon is going to have to work harder to kind of capture consumers because in the US, Amazon is the top fashion retailer. Did you know that? I did, but that's America. I feel like the UK is so- There you go, exactly. <laughs> I think it's a cultural thing in a big way because, yeah. um, you know, there's like the stereotype of Londoners and other Europeans being more fashion savvy than Americans. I yeah. don't think it's a stereotype, yeah. I think it's true. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Americans, but- No offense. Sorry. <laughs> because if you look at the stats, the people who Amazon are beating out in terms of being the top fashion retailer are the supermarkets like, Walmart and Target and it's like can you imagine Georgia Asda being one of the biggest fashion retailers or even you you. or whatever you know like what? not the same at all so I think um Amazon do have a shot in terms of capturing consumers but I think in order to do so there are a number of things that they need to sort out the first thing is as you mentioned the UX Amazon knows that their selling point is quick efficient customer service in every way Mm -hmm. so they don't have to invest in having an amazing super slick user experience having said that they still ab test a number of features but the amazon website is just not as pretty as any other website that would be shopping on because they don't have to and it's a lot of money to do that the other thing is on the fashion side of things their fashion landing page actually looks very different to the rest of the Amazon website. So there was actually a, compa- a comparison on that article where it said it looks something a little bit more like Little Porter. Now, I wouldn't go that far, but it's definitely a lot cleaner. It looks a lot more like a typical um, high-end, high-street fashion brand. So we're talking like the likes of your, your Zara's, your Mango's. Um, Inditex in general, so everything that isn't super fast fashion, it looks a little bit cleaner. The question is whether they're going to be able to sort out the search so that it's a little bit more, um, it's a little less random. For example, as you said, if I'm going to search for a water bottle on Amazon, I'm going to get water bottles of all shapes, all sizes, all colours. It's just going to be a bit of a mess in terms of sifting through them until I use the the filters. What they need to do is kind of get into the mind of the customer. So if I'm searching for a turtleneck as a 25-year-old who lives in the city, you need to not be showing me what a 70-year-old woman is going to be wearing. And I think that's going to be their challenge because although they have a wealth of data about us and about our buying habits, especially as a lot of people shop almost solely on Amazon, they're going to need to reach such a broad demographic, which other fashion retailers don't necessarily have to do. So the question then is, how do they conquer that? The other thing about Amazon, the reason at the beginning I was like, I sure as hell hope that they don't conquer the fashion space is Amazon as a company have a reputation for bringing out products to compete with the companies that they want to buy or the companies that they want to run to the ground. (laughs) And, I mean, I have my own strong opinions on Amazon. I generally don't shop at Amazon at all. I don't have Amazon Prime. I try to buy whatever is on Amazon at another retailer because I have issues with a company having that much power, especially if it's a retailer um, and having access to that wealth of data. It just does not sit well with me at all, alongside all of the controversies around workers' rights and all the rest of it. Um, Amazon, you mentioned Amazon wardrobe, right? Yes. When you were describing that, I was like, that's Stitch Fix. So... <laughs> you know what, though? It is, but it's not personalised. 
it's not personalized no so, so you basically you build the wardrobe yourself they don't recommend it they don't like none of that you just literally get seven things you throw them in and they send it to you there is nothing personalized which goes back to your point about that's one of the things they're going to have to figure out mm-hmm. they have so much data about me i've been using them i literally checked today since 2015 i have been a prime customer with the fashion side i just feel like they're going to have to really ramp up the personalization experience or personalized experience for me to want to even think about shopping there that it has to be different from what zara's doing what h&m's doing what top shops do top shop no asos yeah. is doing <laughs> for me to even consider shopping there. And yeah, so I think that's one of the main things for me. It wasn't personalized. It was just literally like, I type in shirt. Do you know how many shirts came up? (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of work to make that shopping experience easier and more seamless. Um, But on the personalization aspect, one of the interesting products I did see a few months ago was um, Made For You, which is a custom t-shirt company. I think we may have spoken about it actually in a previous episode. And the way it works is, you know, you have your measurements or whatever, and you get your T-shirt, that, which is your perfect fit. There is a company that does the same thing called Son of a Tailor, which has existed for a few years now. I think they're based in Denmark or somewhere in Scandinavia. And my theory is that they're doing this to try to buy them out or to try the, to just absorb their business, which, again, I have issues with because it stifles creativity. Fashion is a creative industry, first and foremost. It is not just about, you know, buying something because you need it. The reason we have so many clothes is because clothes are a way that we express ourselves. If Amazon is run by a bunch of non-designers, are they going to be able to channel that same energy? I'm not holding my breath at the moment because super fast fashion rules and I don't see that changing anytime soon. But it's an interesting thing to keep an eye on going forward. In case you missed it, our eFitter store is open. Shop hoodies, tote bags, mugs, and even face coverings and rep the eFitter tribe. Find us at eFitterapp.com slash shop. Just a question on your users' attitude to shopping at the moment. Um, how do you think that wearing will change your users' attitude towards um, consumption as a whole and just the way that they look at their wardrobes? So um, I'm sure you have various different market groups but the one thing that all shoppers at the moment have in common is that we're so used to seeing an Instagram influencer posting something and thinking oh I need to go and get that um so you know taking it back into what is existing in your wardrobe how do you think that you'll be able to help change users shopping behaviors I love I love that um and it's maybe something it's it's probably the thing that keeps me up (laughs) most at night realistically (laughs) um so I think a couple of things here so I think on the first hand um the more low-key way in which we do that is by taking everything digital so i think once you really see what you own um i know this is not so relevant now but a lot of our users have been saying to me you know i'm in a shop and i've got wearing on my phone i was going to buy this like you know blue coat that's all the rage at the moment i actually have one from two seasons ago from zara that's quite similar I'm in a halt, I'm just gonna press pause. So I think it's that first, you know, almost subliminal level of consciousness that I think is instilled in our wearers. And I think that's already great. Um, and then I think, you know, that the, the next thing um, is about um, being able to consciously um, and almost like mathematically look at the stuff that you want. And so we decided to, for the for the February launch, um, include a wish list functionality. So placed in the app where you could kind of go and put in all those e-commerce links or pictures of stuff that you're thinking about buying in, you know, an aggregate 
um, place, a place where you can sort of go back, revisit it, have a think, come back to it if you really want to buy. So again, it's almost like just making us more um, deliberate, more intentional, taking more time in this whole cycle to purchase and really making sure we elongate um, that, that funnel as much as possible. Um, and then we also thought about adding in a mood board feature so that you could put in all those pictures of bloggers that you just mentioned or stylish girlfriends or you and your mom looking fabulous when you really got an outfit right um, and use that as inspiration and, and sort of cross-reference that with your uh, canvas function where you're trying to create your outfits. And we think that just by having that kind of symbiosis there, you're also able to say, you know what, I actually don't need a new coat that that blogger was, was wearing. I've got one pretty similar that I can use in my recreation of her look. So again, it was also just about um, showing you the infinite possibilities and really maximizing creativity to take away from consumption and really push up utilization. Amazing. Now we've alluded to this earlier, I think the, the bigger picture for wearing beyond the app, but what would you say is the big, the ultimate vision for wearing, I don't know, five years from now and, and beyond? Oh, you're killing me. <laughs> I just need to get funded right now. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, absolutely. So many ideas. I don't even know where to start. I mean, we have got some serious um, whack ideas out there for in five years time. Um, I think the most, the craziest one, if I can start from there, that might not be achievable in five years time, um, would be some kind of insane IoT integration with your actual wardrobe where you could like look on wearing and kind of recreate the look and it would somehow pull it out of your wardrobe or it would appear on your mirror, like some insane technology like that where you could like see the look in your mirror and then go onto the dress me and swipe and then the new clothes would, would appear on your mirror digitally or something like that. For us, that would be literally, you know, the absolute best um, because I think there's still a little bit of work to be done there in terms of bridging that digital to physical relationship with your wardrobe um, and I don't want to touch too much on retention but that's really something that we want to focus on um, in terms of user behaviors user stories user journeys so that I think that's that's top of mind I think a little bit less futuristic for us um, would be something very similar to what I was saying about what I was talking about before so social app where um it's almost essentially like an Instagram, but for fashion that takes a little bit of noise out of Instagram that is so saturated. Um, and it's really just a place where you and your friends can comment on each other's outfits. You can see what people create. Um, your friends could open up their wardrobe to you. So you could swap stuff with them. Um, you know, you could uh, just so much, so many social features. Um, and then also that marketplace that we were talking about where everything is basically done at the click of a button and you've got, any integration possible whether it's with like rental apps whether it's with like eco-friendly dry cleaners I've kind of touched on this before um, but I think in the next five years if we're able to really build this out and the best machine learning possible where you literally trust 100% every recommendation from wearing I think we're we're pretty pretty up there. It's so funny you mentioned smart mirrors as a thing that's like, you know, far into the distant future, because I find the idea of integrating with a mirror, for example, so cool. And I think it was um, 
in the earlier part of last year, um, a smart mirror company was acquired by, I want to say Amazon. We spoke about it in one of our earlier podcast episodes. So this is absolutely, yeah, this is exactly the kind of thing, the direction that we see fashion tech going in. So I can't see how wearing looks in five years time with all those features incorporated. Just as a follow-up question to that, um, it may seem unrelated at this point, but how do you even prioritize feature rollout? Because you've got so many ideas, it can go in so many different directions. Um, how do you figure out what your consumers are actually going to use at any given point and also what you have the capacity to build? Super interesting consideration. I think that's number two that keeps me up at night. Um, <laughs> I think it's, it's also really difficult when your team is 75% female because the ideas just keep coming. Uh, and sometimes we actually just have to be like, guys, put that on hold, please. Like curb your imagination. We need to actually sit down and focus. Um, so I think a, a couple of things. So we are trying to be as agile as possible um, in our two week sprints. We're really trying to get feedback, iterate, build and launch um, and, and sort of continuously do that post February launch because obviously for now it was just about getting us to the, to the final product. Um, and then I think in terms of prioritization versus budget versus, you know, uh, resource and time, I think it's, it's, it's quite a challenge. Um, and we are still sort of experimenting with this, but I think the answer really is to give ourselves enough time to receive market feedback. Um, so while we say we do the feedback, you know, the two week feed, two week feedback loops, sorry. Um, I think there's also a big part of those um, more complex features that have to be assessed over, you know, a quarterly basis or something like that. So most notably, you know, if we wanted to test social features, you have to wait for some kind of network effect to happen. You need to wait for that to progress and, and, and sort of see you know, what word of mouth does for the product. So I think a lot of those features, um, we're just gonna have to basically ensure our, run make, our runway can match um, in, in that testing time um, and still make sure we can run the company. So it's, it's, it's pretty hard at this point, um, but I think as we raise our, our seed round, it'll be a little bit easier. But yeah, some of it is, is pretty long-term um, and we actually look at yearly product backlog because we've got so many ideas, as you said, and how do we prioritize um, and how do we make sure that the data that we're getting back is really meaningful? Speaking of building the product and you know, the iterations, you alluded to the fact that you have a 75% female team, right? Which I love, absolutely love. Um, so obviously you're a solo founder, I believe, but you have a team. Tell us a bit about that. Like, how did that come about? How is it managing a team as a solo founder, first time founder, I'm assuming? Goodness. <laughs> so where do I begin? Um, so I think, look, I do have a CTO and he is my co-founder, but it, it's true that it's not, I am really a solo co-founder um, just because, you know, he, he came in a little bit later in, in that, in that process. Um, so look, I think a lot of great things about being a solo entrepreneur, um, you are able to do a lot of stuff that you want to do, you know, that there are less fights, there's less kind of stress around, you know, that 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 co-founder or co-founders relationship, which can be really difficult at the beginning, um, especially when you need to sort of stay true to your North Star at some point, right, when you're getting started, like, you, you, you need to sort of prioritize what you what you look at and what what direction you, you go down. Um, so I think for me, specifically, I was really lucky in that I got that great first part of it um, and then I was super privileged to meet Hako, my CTO and we went through two accelerators together um, and that's how we really bonded we kind of did those late nights 
um, you know, with work. He he was still employed at the time, um, and still is to a certain degree because he couldn't jump ship, you know, jump ship totally. Um, so that was really, really amazing. And then from that, we were super lucky to hire um, our, you know, brand and marketing specialist. She's been with us since the beginning and she's kind of like my right hand woman. I don't think I could do anything without her. Um, and she's been doing a lot of our stuff on social, a lot of engagement with brands um, and, and sort of micro influencers. So she's really been, um, you know, kind of my sister, my, oh, my, I was going to say my work sister, but I don't know if that even applies. <laughs> I have a work husband and a work sister. Um, and then I think, you know, building out the team was a real challenge because at this point, you're still kind of trying to move into that CTO role, which requires certain things of you. But at the same time, you, you need to build the product, you need to oversee operations, and you need to hire. Um, so I think I've been struggling a little bit with that transition. Um, and specifically when we're talking around fundraising, because that takes so much time of your day it takes so much energy um, so I think we we now have hit a really good balance where we've hired some amazing volunteers um, who are interning with us and we've also got uh, an analyst who does all our operations and she's kind of been number three in the company excluding um, the CTO and she is just wonderful so I think as long as you're able to get to a place where operationally you have that support it then all starts to become uh, a little bit easier. Sure thing. So you've spoken um, very briefly about how you've been on a couple of accelerators and especially as a first time founder, you're often just thrown into it and you have no idea where to begin. Um, what do you think for you the benefit of having a more formalised business education in that sense has been? Yeah, I think it's so funny. When I was at Goldman, they always used to say stuff like, we throw you in at the deep end it's like sink or swim like no points for second best I was like I am never going to feel this way ever again <laughs> and I did <laughs> so it is very much a little bit um a little bit like that when you start as a as a first time entrepreneur I think especially if you don't have a background in these things maybe you don't have a you know family business background or you don't have friends who have their own you know it, it all depends about around your your sort of ecosystem and um support group but if you don't really have that it's very difficult to try transition so I think for me um, even though they do take a lot of equity some of these programs you know kind of rip you a little bit um, I think for us it was so worth it just because as you mentioned it's having that um, institutionalized learning so stuff around growth hacking about staying lean like you know for me reading the lean startup wasn't enough we really needed tailored help in that domain especially when you're building a really complex product um, and then on, this, on, the, on the flip side, it almost just keeps you um, in line. Like it, it just makes sure you show up, you kind of, you know, have stand-ups with your team. It really just makes sure you kind of move into that entrepreneurial flow, which you can customize, but it's just about having that accountability and, and sort of getting you the right, um, the right processes and, and tools to sort of empower your, your journey and your team building. Amazing. So, so good. I mean, the journey so far has been so fascinating. I've followed you and wearing for a while now. So it's so, so lovely to see how far you guys have come. And I can't wait for what's next. As a final question, I mean, we're in the sustainable space, even though we are fashion tech. And one thing that we have seen, I think, over the past year is a lot of greenwashing, a lot of, you know, fake sustainable <laughs> metrics that are thrown out there by brands that we love, we hate to love. Um, so how do you think consumer facing? We hate to love. I love that. 
<laughs> so how do you think consumer-facing sustainable fashion solutions can encourage corporations to prioritise sustainability? How much time do you guys have? <laughs> I mean, this is a mother of a question. <laughs> um, I mean, look, I think a, a, there's, there's so much to unpack. Um, I mean, I think firstly, there definitely is some kind of basic policy change, government shift, um, almost like, you know, consumer empowerment that we need to see, whether it's a direct result of, as you said, these, these fashion tech um, consumer facing businesses trying to encourage us to, to be more aware, to learn, to, to choose different behaviours. I think there has to be some something on that structural fundamental level that 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 happens um and i know we've made a lot of good progress but there's still so much to do from that perspective um i also think that there has to be some kind of um you know macroeconomic understanding from a brand perspective that it is in their best interest to rethink their business models to rethink the way their companies are structured um, and to ensure their survival by re, you know by, by by looking at their value chain and looking at their processes and, and saying okay you know the the model where we have 27 collections a year is just unsustainable like that's not going to work um and and there has to be some kind of paradigm shift there i think um for the brands to sort of re-incentivize for their shareholders to sort of say guys we need to act we need to be stepping into the esg space a little bit more um so i think those are kind of the two main considerations for me um but i think the most powerful thing that i've seen so far um are sort of the millennials and the gen z's kind of saying this does not fit my value system i i refuse like i love to hate you like sorry i hate to love you h&m or zara or you know whoever they are i'm conscious of that but now i am choosing and it's all about that complete shift of like I'm going to, you know, choose where I put my pound. I'm going to, you know, pay for things that I respect, things that I can, you know, uphold. Um, so for me, that's predominant. It's, it's predominantly the most exciting part of this whole upheaval. Um, and, and, and it's, you know, one of the best things that I've seen happen in, in 2020, especially amongst our user base, people asking for, you know, discovery of sustainable brands, um, for swapping, for, um, you know, mending, repurposing. I just find that absolutely amazing. So I think there is that collective consciousness that's, you know, coming to light. Definitely, definitely. I mean, we spoke about that. I think it was in our conscious consumerism episode, but we spoke about, you know, our collective voice matters. And one thing that 2020 uncovered is just how dire the fashion industry is. But I think that was the year where everyone just found their voices and, and used it. So that sounds really exciting. I really am hopeful for the sustainable community. Thank you so, so much, Bianca. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a pleasure. And we need to do the same for wearing sometime down the line. We cannot wait for our listeners to hear this. Where can they find you on social media? Oh, so first of all, I think at wearing, that's W-H-E-R-I-N-G underscore underscore. Um, and my handle is just Bianca Rangecroft on Instagram and on Twitter, it's B underscore Rangecroft. And on LinkedIn, obviously, it's just my name. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of The Fit. For more updates, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at eFitter app or follow us with the hashtag TheFitPod. Don't forget to like us, rate us, comment, engage however you listen to your podcast. It's really important for us so that we can get the word out there. See you soon. Bye.